Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Jesus says, one will betray me, but he doesn't at that moment identify it, in, in essence, giving them the chance to say, is it me? Then he says, the one who dips his bread when I dip mine will be the one. And guess what? Guess how many of them would have dipped their bread with Jesus at that meal? All of them. Now, Jesus, we know, was speaking specifically about Judas, but also was saying, you're all going to do it. You all have the capacity to do it. Last week, remember, I said that if we were sitting around that table, each one of us would have said, Lord, is it me? It's me, isn't it? And he would say, yeah, but I forgive you. In fact, we saw that last week, even though every single one of them declared that they wouldn't, they said, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And then 600 soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, and they all ran away so, to avoid being killed. We also read that how Jesus also asks, Lord, am I the one who's going to betray you? Even though he knows he's already made a deal to betray Jesus. So the question was asked last week, why did Judas even ask if he were the one? But I think he doesn't want anyone to know what he was hiding in his heart. And so he keeps up appearances, the appearance of being a good follower of Jesus. Honestly, it's exhausting trying to keep a lie going, isn't it? Isn't it? trying to keep everyone around you fooled, having to remember what lie you told to what person so that you could keep it going. But do you know how good it feels to just let it all go? To bring it out of that dark place that you've been hiding it and expose it to the light? Even the secular world calls that coming clean. Isn't that interesting? John writes in his final letter, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. Now, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes the cleansing process is painful, but it's worth it. Amen? Now, at this point in the meal, Jesus begins to take up elements of the feast, specifically the bread and the cup. Again, We'll do that today. God has lined that up again. Both of these things were, had significant meaning already based on the Passover. Um, and he tells his disciples, this bread is my body that is broken for you. This cup is my blood that's poured out for the remissions of all sin. Now, some of this maybe made sense to the disciples because they've been celebrating Passover and hearing about the symbolism their whole life. But Mostly, they did not understand until after his resurrection. Next, we see Jesus lead them into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And then Jesus goes off and he prays to his father, if there is any way 
for mankind to be redeemed. Please let it be so, but not my will, Father. Your will be done. And I sat with that and the weight and the significance of Jesus' prayers all week and the reality of it sank into my heart. Jesus pleading as he sweats blood from the intensity of his prayers, Father, is there a way that the sin of mankind can be forgiven and allow them to enter into fellowship with you in heaven that doesn't involve me being beaten and mocked and whipped to within an inch of death then nailed to a cross and left to die in the sun while taking on responsibility for the sin of the whole world and for the first time in existence be separated from you? And God looks down and he says to his own son, no, this is the only way. And people today, even some who claim to be Christians, say, well, Jesus is a way. He's just not the only way. And I have to believe that those people don't realize that what they are saying is that God is a cruel monster who chose to let his son be tortured and killed needlessly because all we really need to do is live a good life. Finally, we see Judas return to the garden with 600 men with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus. And, And mighty Peter, the Lord's great defender, pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter apparently was ready to take on 600 soldiers with one sword. But he had been unable to stay awake and pray for even one hour. Gang, prayer is our best weapon, but seems to be the hardest one to wield. Interestingly, when Peter worked under the strength of his own flesh, He was only able to cut off one ear. Later on, though, when he works under the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he is able to pierce 3,000 hearts. What's better? Well, that brings us to where we left off in verse 57 last week. So let's pick up there. It says, and those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Do you see that? They were ready for this. They had already been called together together for this meeting in the middle of the night. Now, in case you don't know, let me walk you through a couple of things that are wrong here. Everything that they're about to do is illegal according to their own law. They weren't allowed to come together by their own law in the middle of the night ever for any kind of a meeting. They weren't allowed to do it in anyone's private home. They'll come to Caiaphas' home. In another gospel, it says they went to Annas' home first and then to Caiaphas' home. In the middle of the night, they weren't allowed to do that. Trials had to take place in the hall of judgment only. It says that they are going to um, declare a sentence of death and they're even going to basically carry it out right after that. That was illegal by their own law. It said that any sentence of murder had to be slept on for one full day to see if God maybe declares mercy for that person. They didn't do that either. They were not 
interested in what was the truth. They were only interested in killing Jesus. And that is what their plan was. And so they had assembled. And so if you read the all four gospel stories, you'll see that they actually go to the house of Annas first, even though this says Caiaphas and that Caiaphas was the high priest. You understand that Caiaphas was the high priest that the Roman government put in place as the Jewish high priest. They didn't like Annas. They liked Caiaphas because they could control him. But the people looked at Annas as the actual high priest. So they didn't like him because he was the one that was cheating them in the temple when they came to exchange their money and buy sacrificial animals. But he was the one they recognized because Caiaphas was the one that, that was put into place by the Romans. So actually, they go to Annas first, to his house, um, illegal. Then they go to Caiaphas, which is what we read here, also illegal. And then the following morning, which we'll see is, then they have the official trial in front of the Sanhedrin in the Hall of Judgment, Matthew barely mentions it at all because it's a done deal. They've already done it twice. Also, Matthew doesn't talk about the fact that they took Jesus to go and see Herod, who was king at the time, king of the Jews, also put in, basically in place by the Romans. And Herod saw Jesus as well. But you know what? The thing at Herod's, it was kind of a joke. They brought Jesus to Herod, and Herod was like, oh, I've been waiting to see you, Jesus. Do a miracle for me. That's what he wanted. Like, I've heard you do really cool things. Do something. Do something cool. And Jesus wouldn't do anything for him. He didn't do what, what Herod wanted him to do. And it says that, uh, Now the chief priests and the elders all, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. Um, so actually, that's another thing. If you're trying someone, you're not allowed to go out and find witnesses. They're supposed to come to you and accuse someone before you actually bring them in. But see, they've brought them in, and now they're looking for people to come in and testify against them. But how many people can they find? None. Two, it says that they finally get together. Two. They, but basically it says they were looking for people to come in and testify against Jesus, and they found none. Ironically, Jesus could have called an endless line of witnesses to testify on his behalf. Those he healed, those he fed, those, he, those who heard his words and believed, those he raised from the dead. The angelic choir that sang at his birth, Jesus could have made the very rocks of the temple cry out as witnesses of his deity. But for the sake of the fulfillment of prophecy, and more importantly, the salvation of the world, Jesus opened not his mouth, it says. But at last two came forward, and they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. They get two witnesses who, by the way, still get it wrong. They're talking about when Jesus first came into Jerusalem, that first time. We read about it in John's Gospel. And he saw that the courtyard of the temple was filled with corruption. They were, they were cheating the people. There was commerce going on that wasn't allowed. And Jesus came in, and he made a whip of cords, and he drove out the money changers, and he turned over the tables. And then the Jews and the leaders of the Jews came to him, and they asked him, Who are you? And his answer was, 
tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll rise it up. And John says he was talking about himself. It's interesting to me that at that point, they say, who are you? And he uses the, the, the tear down this temple, and then I'll rise it up in three days. And now they're using that in the trial to convict him to say, well, he said that he would tear down the temple and then build it in three days. And you know, they love the temple. Remember, we talked about that. You couldn't even speak against the temple without it being considered blasphemy. And these guys come and they say, well, he said uh, that, uh, if he, he, that he would destroy the temple in three days and the uh, I mean, build, destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And the high priest looks in 62, it says, and the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And this is what, this, see, here's the thing. You have to see this in the text. They thought they had this locked down. All of a sudden, they can't find any witnesses the two that they find don't even really agree. The other gospels say their testimonies didn't really agree with one another. The high priest is getting very frustrated. He's like, this is not going well for us. And in frustration, he says, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, it is as you say. You know that Jesus could have remained silent right in that moment, and they would have had no cause to condemn him to death. If he had just been quiet and said nothing, they wouldn't have had anything to take to condemn him to death. But, but out of frustration, the high priest finally asks the right question, the one that Jesus wants to answer for anyone who is lost. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? When that question was asked of Jesus, he said, you have said it. That's the one he answers. That's the one he wants to answer. If you cry out to him now and you say, is this true? Are you the son of God? He will say, yes, I am. Jesus said, it is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus, he makes this statement to them, and he makes it to us essentially as well. He says, you sit in judgment of me now, but there is a day coming when I will be in the seat of judgment, and you will be called to give an account to the answer to this question, what have you done with Jesus? What have you done? If I stand before God and he says, what have you done with my son Jesus? I will say, he, he's my Lord and my Savior. But if you have to stand before God and say, I don't really know who Jesus is, or, you know, and I kept him in my back pocket and I just pulled him out when I, I just rubbed that Jesus lamp whenever I needed something, you will hear this, depart from me. I do not know you. Jesus says, to them and to us, that day is coming. The high priest hears this. Look at 65. This is really important. The high priest tore his clothes, saying he has spoken 
blasphemy. That may maybe sounds weird to us, but in the Bible, oftentimes when they heard something that they believed to be against God or blasphemous, they would take a hold of their clothes and they would pull it like this and they would rip it as a sign of their disgust over just what was said against God to show their devotion to God. We actually also see it more associated in the Old Testament over sorrow, over the realization of their own sin. It had become something else. But in the Old Testament, it was, I am so sorrowful for realizing that I am so sinful. Let me show my mourning. And in fact, there's a story in the Old Testament about King Jehoiakim, right? And it had been so long since anybody had even known about the word of God. And they were cleaning like, I don't know, like the basement of the temple one day. And they, they came across this old book, was a scroll, we, not a book, but they call it a book. And they brought it out and they said, hey, we found this while we were cleaning. And so he said, well, read it to me. And he opened up and it was the word of God. And he read, and he was so overcome with grief at how badly they had transgressed God's law that he tore his clothes. That's the proper response. The high priest now here is tearing his clothes because he hears Jesus claim to be God. Don't miss that, by the way. Why did he tear his robes, because Jesus had claimed, in his opinion, to be God. So he believed that Jesus was claiming to be God. Has anyone ever said to you, well, you know what, the Bible never says that Jesus claimed to be God. Uh, yeah, it does. Read it. Try reading it. So share that with somebody else. You know, in, in love, when they say, uh, the, Bible, the Bible never said that Jesus claimed to be God, be like, have you ever read the Bible because I think it does a couple of times. Here, there was no question. They, they said, without any question, he's claiming to be God, or at least claiming deity. But here's the thing. You see, in Levit Leviticus, chapter 21, verse 10, the high priest is strictly forbidden from tearing his robes. Forbidden. The high priest was not to tear his robes. And so Caiaphas here now tears his robes. Either he doesn't remember reading that very important passage in Leviticus, or, which, and probably more likely, he is trying to put on a show, a big display. This is really bad. This guy is claiming deity, so I need to do something really impressive. And he tears his robes. However, he wasn't supposed to do that, as high priest especially. Now, what he inadvertently does by tearing his garments is to mark the beginning of the end of the priesthood. In a few hours, not from today, so relax. <laughs> In a few hours from what we're reading about, God will finish it. Jesus will die on the cross. And at that moment, God will then tear the rest of the way. When he goes in and he tears the veil in the temple from top to bottom, all the way down, finishing the need for the priesthood in that moment. The priests were there so that everyday people could come and offer sacrifices, but they couldn't have access to God. They needed the priest in order to do that. But when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood and he finished and paid the debt. He also finished the need for the priesthood and God said, shh, now you all have access to me through Jesus. That's still true. That was over 2,000 years ago. It's still true. That's still the case. 
You have access to God through Jesus Christ. But gang, I'm telling you what, it's only through Jesus Christ. There is a way, and that should blow your mind that there's even a way, but there is a way, and it is through Jesus only. He says in verse 65, what further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, we have heard his blasphemy. And I think the priest is so thankful because he had nothing up until this point. Now he's like, he's claiming deity. That's reason enough. So he says, what do you think? And they answered saying, he is deserving of death. That should have, it should have like, trial should have stopped right here. If they really were just about taking this man who was claiming deity and saying he is deserving of death, they should have taken him then, they should have put him in some kind of a holding cell, and they should have gone home now. And, uh, I mean, if they actually, everything they've done is illegal up to this point, but even if they wanted to redeem it a little, they should have gone home and then prayed about it. But what we see in verse 67 is their hearts revealed. Because it says, Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? You understand, this is not the Roman soldiers. This is the priests, the high priests, and the Pharisees, who in another gospel says they blindfolded him and then started slapping him and punching him and saying, prophesy, who hit you? Who hit you? And having a grand old time. And their hearts of darkness are revealed through that action because it wasn't just about arresting a man who was claiming to be God. It was about, we're going to treat him so, so poorly. Do you know, gang, this is how the world today still treats God when they feel like they have the upper hand. They, they mock him. They abuse him. They blame him. They turn their back on him. They tell him that he doesn't exist. And then they blame him for every bad thing that happens in their life. When people think that they have the upper hand on God, they do the exact same thing. None of that was necessary. Now, Verse 69, now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you were also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by the camp had said to Peter, surely you are one of those because your speech betrays you. They mean your accent. And then began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Here's the deal. We know from John's gospel that John and his family knew the family of the high priest. And so John was able to go in. Well, Peter tries to follow in. But you see, it says somewhere, I don't know where I, uh, I must have missed something. It says that Peter followed at a distance. You see, Peter, after he cut off the ear of Malchus and then Jesus fixed it up, 
Peter ran away like all the other ones did, and now he's following Jesus at a distance. It's very important that we see that because before he was with Jesus, close proximity. Now he's following at a distance, and that distance causes him to slowly, actually quite quickly, decline as we're going to see one step at a time. John goes to the girl who guards the gate at the high priest's palace, and she says, oh, let him come in. And Peter, that's how Peter's able to get in. It says that Peter sat among the people. Peter there finds himself among those who are there in support of the high priest and what he's doing. This girl comes to Peter and says, you're one of him. You're one of those guys that are with Jesus. And look at it, he says, I don't know what you are saying. It's that first step of compromise. It's like a half step. Because what Peter maybe is saying in his mind or could rationalize this way, well, I'm not technically denying Jesus. I mean, I didn't say I don't know him. I just said, I don't know what you're talking about. Have you ever done that? Tried to justify a lie and be like, well, I didn't really do this. I mean, I just, I, I mean, I didn't do that, but I didn't, I didn't do the actual thing. We're really good at we're really good at rationalizing away our sin, aren't we? <laughs> you know, as I say that, I'm reminded of what the devil said to Eve. Did God really say that you're gonna die if you eat? Did He really say that? And Eve's answer should have been, "Yeah, yeah, yes, He did. He did say that. So I will not." But she was like, "Hmm." It does look delicious. A little bit later, it says that they asked him again. Someone came to him and said, you're, you're with this, this guy from this Jesus of Nazareth. It said, but again, he denied with an oath. This is like Peter saying, look, I swear on a stack of holy Bibles. I don't know him. Taking a note, that means that he's trying to emphasize. And really, he was really emphasizing. It's like if someone comes to you and says, look, I swear on a stack of holy... The more someone tries to convince you of their truth, the more likely it's a lie. Just, just a tip for you. A long time ago in another life, I used to manage people. It's a horrible job. This is what I found. If somebody called me up and said, look, I'm not feeling well, I'm not coming in, that was truth. If someone said, oh, I was up all night with a stomach, I was running back and forth, I had diarrhea all night, it gave me every number of details, I'd be like, you're totally lying. And it was almost always the case. Like, the more you try to convince me, the less I believe you. Peter says, I swear, I do not know this man. A little later, it says those who stood by the camp came up to Peter and said, surely you are the one, your speech betrays you. We know you're a Galilean, it says in another gospel. You speak like a Galilean, he's a Galilean, you're him. In fact, I believe it was the third person, it says, who was the relative or like the cousin of the guy whose ear Peter cut off. He's like, you're the guy who cut off my cousin's ear with Jesus. And it says that, Peter began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Now, it doesn't mean that he starts, you know, using the F word. 
uh, in this moment. What this means is he takes on a curse upon himself. And what he actually says is, let me be eternally damned if I am lying. I do not know him. You see the, the decline that Peter goes down here? I don't really understand what you're talking about to, no, really, I don't know him to, let me be eternally damned if I am lying about knowing this man. Boy, doesn't that happen? Once you start down that slope, it's hard to stop. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Didn't Jesus say that to him? He says, Peter, you say that you would even go to death and not deny me. But I'm telling you right now that the cock will crow and you will deny me three times before that happens. And Peter does that very thing. He denies Christ three times. And then it says, and a rooster crowed. Here's the thing. Okay? This makes me smile. Do you know that at this time in the city of Jerusalem, chickens were not allowed to be raised? No chickens anywhere in the city of Jerusalem. They were not allowed because they were dirty and because chickens get everywhere. And what they were afraid of is that they would go in on the Day of Atonement to offer atonement for everybody in the holiest of holies, and there'd be a chicken on the Ark of the Covenant because chickens get in. And so the Sanhedrin banned fowl chicken of any kind. And so now I'm wondering, like, what was this a pet rooster that someone brought in with them? Did somebody leave their ringtone on and it was set to rooster? Was this like a super rooster from way outside the city? I mean, you can hear a rooster pretty far, but you know, there's a commotion going on right here, right? They're not all just sit quietly sitting by the campfire. And so what is this that it's referring to? Well, here's the interesting part. We've always just interpreted it as a rooster, okay? But that's, I don't believe that's true. Actually, there was a man, uh, a, there was a job for one of the priests. Like, you know, when the priests were assigned to serve in the temple, they would draw lots for different jobs at different times. Remember when John the Baptist was going to be born, it said that it came up for Zacharias' father. It was his time to serve in the temple. So there was a job of one of the priests. Early in the morning, before anybody got in there, he was supposed to go in and shovel out all of the ashes from the altar from the day before because, you know, they were like burning stuff on the altar and then all this ash would be there. And so someone had to come in and basically clean out the altar so that then the temple was prepared for worship. When, and he would do that, he had to do that very early in the morning before anybody else came. And so what he would do is he would go in and he would clean up the temple get it all ready, and then he would take a trumpet and he would blow it, a shofar, like a ram's horn, for a very long, sustained horn, and that basically signified to everybody, it is time to start to worship. And it was called the cockcrow. Because those words in Greek and Hebrew both can mean the cry of a man, um, and you know, like the cry of a man or the cry, like not crying with his voice, but using a trumpet to make that sound. So it wasn't an animal making a sound. I don't believe. I think what he was saying was that it was a, the designation of the time of day when it was signifying it's time to come and worship. And what Jesus said to Peter is before we hear the cry to come and worship, you will deny me three times. And so Peter 
now is saying, let me be eternally damned if I'm lying about knowing this person. And then you hear, and it says in Luke's gospel, at that moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Man, have you ever had your heart drop? Have you ever known that feeling? Your heart drops. Imagine the one that you believe to be the Messiah has told you that you will deny me three times before the cry to worship. And rather than to worship, Peter does deny him. And Jesus and Peter and everyone hears the sound and Jesus looks at you. And Peter's reaction was what mine would be as well. It says that he ran out and he wept bitterly. Bitterly over the realization that he had just done what Christ said he would do, even though he said, I will go to death before I deny you. Now, this is the part I love, because that's me and that's you, and we do this, and we will do it. But what I love about this is Jesus died on the cross. He went into the grave just as it was said that would happen. And on the third day, he rose again. On that day, you know that it says that there were women who went to the tomb to anoint his body because it was, they were, he was prepared so hastily because the preparation day was coming. And so they basically just wrapped him up and put him in the tomb. So Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary. There's so many Marys. They all went to the tomb and they're like, they're very early in the morning and they're on their way to the tomb and one of them says to the other, oh, wait a minute, who's going to roll that stone away? Which I love because they were like, we're just going to minister to Jesus' body and they hadn't even thought about the obstacles in their way. They were just like, you know what, we'll just figure it out when we get there. God will do something. And God did something. He rolled the stone away. They got there and they peeked in and there was an angel sitting there. And you know what the angel said? The one you're looking for, he's not here. He is risen, praise the Lord. But then he said, now go and tell the other disciples, and Peter. God was like, listen, I want you to give these women a special, a special message. Let Peter know that I'm thinking about him, that I'm knowing. When Jesus looked at Peter, when that horn blew, he looked at him and he said, Peter, the word says that he looked down into Peter, like he looked into him and he said, Peter, I see that there is more in you than a betrayer. And that is what caused Peter, I believe, to run away and burst into tears and to weep bitterly. But then he didn't leave him in that state. When he came back, he was like, go and make sure to tell Peter that he has risen. And Jesus does appear to remember the whole upper room. He comes to them. Uh, and then just a little bit after that, before he finally ascends into heaven, they're all out fishing, you know. And Peter, I think he's still struggling. Peter is still struggling with the fact that he denied Christ. And so Jesus comes, and they're out there fishing. And, uh, there's a, and Jesus comes walking along the shore, but they don't recognize him. And he says, how's the fishing going? And they're like, it's terrible. We haven't caught anything all day. They never catch anything on their own, by the way. Have you noticed? They never catch fish unless Jesus is involved. And he says, try it on the other side. So they do it. They try it on the other side, and they start pulling up fish. And that is the moment that Peter's like, 
that's the Lord. And he launches off the side of the boat and he goes wading in because, you know, they fish in shallow water. And Peter comes up and, uh, and everybody, you know, leaves everybody behind with the fish, you know, because Peter is just like Peter. And, and uh, he gets to Jesus and Jesus takes him aside a little bit after that. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, yes, you know, I love you. And he goes, he goes, tend my sheep. And Jesus asks him a third time, do you love me? It's so beautiful because Jesus says, you denied me three times. I'm going to give you a chance to tell me that you love me three times. But did you know that every time Peter says, I love you, it's, an, uh, it's now, you know how his, his denial was a, as a, as a descent, right? It was kind of bad and then really bad and then really bad. When he asks him, do you love me? It's a different word each time. It's, an es- it's, a, it's a de-escalation or an ascension from that place. Yes, I'm fond of you, Lord, he says. Yes, Lord, I'm fond of you. Yes, Lord, I love you. And he brings him back to that place. He restores him to that place. And guys, he does the same for us. He says simply, come to me and confess the thing that you're hiding in your heart that is, in, in essence, denial of me and be forgiven, and be cleansed of it, and be restored back into relationship with me. Isn't that what you want? Don't you have that thing that's, that, that you've got hidden, that you're like, I don't want anybody to know this, because they're going to think I'm a horrible person, and if I keep it hidden, maybe Jesus won't know, but he knows. And all he's saying is, confess it to me, and be restored to relationship with me, and let it go. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus and said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so he went out and he wept bitterly. The Bible is filled with conviction over sin, but more importantly, the forgiveness of it, the cleansing from it. I don't want anyone to leave here today thinking that they are condemned by their sin. The Bible says that we're not condemned, we're convicted. Our conviction, the sorrow of our sin drives us to confession, the Bible says. And through confession, we are cleansed. I'm going to stop there for today. I've got more stuff. But it's communion also and... I just want you, to, I want you to sit with that this week. I want you to sit with this idea that, you know, we, we tend to hide things in our heart away that we don't want anyone to know, and we think we're hiding it from God. Well, we're not hiding it from him. But he's saying, bring it out into the light as I am in the light, and the blood of my son Jesus Christ that was shed will cleanse you from it, and you can be restored into right relationship with me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, I thank you so much for this beautiful morning, this time in your word, Lord, for what you've shown us and what you will show us as we continue to walk through it with you. Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, for my sin on my behalf. Lord, I know that your word says that you know me by name. You know every hair on my head. You know me so well. Lord, forgive me of the things that I have hidden away in my heart, Lord, that aren't good, that I don't want anyone to know. Let me be emptied out so that I can be completely filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, this morning is communion. This is a day that we, we do communion. And uh, we've spent the last few weeks actually kind of digging into the Passover and what Jesus did on that, um, that last supper, how he took the elements, the bread and the cup especially, and appointed them to himself. This is my body now. This is my blood that's poured out in remission of, of sin for everyone. And so what, what I want to do is um, Lisa is going to come up and she's going to play a communion song while the guys pass out this little cup. Um, with bread. And I just want you to get a hold of that and get it open because it's a little tricky sometimes. But I want you to go and prepare your heart to do exactly what he said. When you take this, and as often as you do, remember the sacrifice that I made for you. Not so that you will feel condemned or guilty, but that we can celebrate in gratitude of what he did for us on the cross so that we can enter into not just fellowship here, but into eternal glory with him forever. Because he says we're only going to do communion for as long as it takes for him to come back and get us. Amen? Feels like really soon. It feels like that's coming sooner maybe than most people believe. All right, so um, Lisa's going to play when you get this cup. Now, let me just stress this to you guys, and I, I don't mean this in any other way but this. Communion is a special time between a follower of Jesus and Jesus, so that if you're not a Christian here today, if you're just visiting us uh, with friends or family, or you don't know if you're a Christian or not, please just let this go by. The Bible says that if you take this without being a Christian, you're eating and drinking condemnation unto yourself. And I don't want that for any of you. I want relationship with Jesus for you. So if the, if the plate comes by and you're not a, a believer in Jesus Christ today yet, let it go. We're not judging you. We're not condemning you. But please, please don't go away thinking, well, this isn't for me. I'm living a good life. All I need to do is a good, live a good life. The Bible says that isn't it. That's not me. That's not, like, I'm not the president of some club, and, the, and, and, like, the more members I get, the more rewards somehow. It's because I want you to have a relationship with Christ. I want you to go to heaven. I want to look around heaven, and I want to see all y'all. All. Go ahead. Savior was saved, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all and all, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain he washed in white as snow lord now indeed i find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt this heart of stone. Jesus. 
paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. We've already looked at this so many times in the last couple of weeks, but we're supposed to remember this every time we take this. And so it says that when Jesus was at the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread is my body that is broken for you. Take this and eat it. Let's do that together. Then Jesus took that cup, the third cup of the meal, that is the cup that means this is my redemption. And he says, this cup is filled with my blood which redeems mankind from their sin. Take this. He says, drink it all. Let's do that together. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. Thank you, Jesus. Lord God, I thank you so much for, again, this morning and for, your, your, for loving us so much that you took such drastic action to be able to redeem us, Lord. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for bleeding your blood for my sake, Lord God. Lord, forgive me for like the disciples for denying you when I have the chance to stand. Lord, help me like Peter will see later, be filled with the Holy Spirit so that rather than to cut off one ear, I might pierce a thousand hearts for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.